This is the Employee Experience in Education podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Graham Foreman, an experienced EdTech investor with a passion for the impact of technology in education. Today, Graham shares his unique insights on the challenges and opportunities in education, including the four areas in education that need continued innovation and investment, why student personalization is essential in the learning experience, and the ever-evolving landscape of education technology. Hey, Graham, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to hear your perspective on education and for you to share some of your insights with us. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who should be paying attention today? Eric, thanks so much. Thanks for uh, for having me. I appreciate the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah, in, in terms of myself, I was a longtime EdTech operator in K-12. I started as a product manager with my first startup and then moved into leading growth in that startup and then a couple of other startups. A couple of them did well, uh, reached some scale, and that's where I started the investing side. And I started investing in K-12 founders when I was an operator, but I started Edivate Capital, which is what I run now as a single family office about 10 years ago as a side hustle with the idea of investing in and advising lots of K-12 founders over time. We happened to sell that third business shortly after I started Edivate, and that was my my moment to jump in and do it full-time. And so I, I've invested in 30-plus early-stage companies. So certainly from an audience standpoint, you know, operators, founders, that's who should be tuning in. Other fellow investors, uh, I've collaborated with many over the years, and in addition to doing some of my investing work, I do a lot of advising at work and mentoring work for companies, nonprofits and for-profits that are outside of the portfolio as well. Around growth, around product market fit, around fundraising, all the kinds of things that you know I dealt with as an operator and, and certainly now help support founders in my portfolio with. No, that's great. Yeah. So you have a wide variety of experience, you know, really working with educators for a number of years. And also, like you mentioned, with the investment side, I love for you because you have so much experience in that K-12 space. Can you lay the groundwork for us a little bit? What's a maybe a quick summary of what you've seen in education over the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years? And what are maybe some high level trends that you've seen in K-12 education? Yeah, that's a great question. Gets me reflecting a little bit on what I've seen over my career. I think cer- certainly at a <clears throat> at a high level, what I've seen is the the space digitizing in a meaningful way over the last you know particularly ten years, uh, but over the last twenty, we have we've had an explosion of education technology tools in use in schools and districts. And the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that accelerated that dramatically as well. The average district now is using thousands of tools. And you know that certainly wasn't the case 
10, even 15, even, even 20 years ago. I think another trend that we've seen is more challenges around staffing in the space. I think we all know about the, the teacher shortage, but that shortage extends to other roles within education. We have a shortage of bus drivers. We have a shortage of counselors, among others. And that challenge, I think, is, is just becoming more and more significant as, as there are more and more options in the workforce that are more flexible, that are more lucrative than being in education. But it's my personal belief that, you know, working in education is incredibly valuable and incredibly fulfilling. And then I would say that maybe a third trend, too, is just the rise of options and choices uh, for families that maybe didn't exist in the same way 15, 20 years ago. And, and what I'm talking about are, you know, not, not only other options bet- besides traditional schools and districts, which still today even serve 90% of kids in K-12, but there are lots of more options there. We have a growing homeschool segment. We've had charter schools have really blossomed as an option. We have micro schools now and pods that uh, became more of a thing during the pandemic and persist after the pandemic. But we also have hybrid education options. Students can learn in person. They can learn remotely in ways that 20 years ago were really a much of an option or a thing. So there are more things we could highlight, but those are certainly some of the things that I think have changed over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And as you mentioned with the ed tech space, COVID certainly was an accelerator for a lot of tools being implemented. Uh, You said thousands of tools in an average average district are being used. If I'm a, a school administrator, if I'm, you know, a principal, a superintendent, HR, how do I even think about wrapping my mind around what's best for my kids, what's best for my teachers, because there are so many choices. How, how do I even start thinking about that? Well, I mean, first off, if you're an administrator, you, you might not know of all the things that are even being used because many of these things enter through the, the classroom level. In ed tech, one of the big developments over the last, I'd say, 10 or so years is the rise in product-led growth companies. And these are consumer-grade tools that teachers and students can adopt, and they're frictionless. We can begin using them almost right away. They don't really require much professional development or training or setup for that matter. And teachers and students are using them in many cases unbeknownst to uh, central office administrators, which gives them more power in terms of choice But it also creates other challenges in terms of data privacy, in terms of knowing what's being used, what's actually effective and that sort of thing. So it's an interesting question because my my feeling is over over the coming months and years, there's there's going to be a culling of these tools. There are headwinds from a budgetary standpoint for schools and districts as we sunset the ESSER and CARES Act funding. We see enrollment declines. We've lost more than a million students 
in traditional schools and districts. And most states tie enrollment to or attendance to the funding that schools and districts receive. So as enrollment goes down, funding goes down. And then also costs have gone up with these staffing shortages. Schools and districts are having to pay more to recruit and retain their staff. So those pressures, I think, mean that there are fewer resources for tools. And, you know, many districts may be using, you know, for the, the for reading, they may be using dozens of tools across mm-hmm. different classrooms and different buildings. Well, they don't need dozens of tools, but they need maybe a smaller subset of those tools. And mm-hmm. so I would expect some of them will go away, meaning the district, the school will no longer be using those and they'll, they'll pare down the number of tools. So mm-hmm. for founders, you know, becoming a, a must have that carves out space in a shrinking budget is a big time priority right now. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the idea of the must have versus the want to have, if I'm, and I'm going to switch a little bit and think about this from maybe a founder's perspective. You know, there's a lot of tools that do one thing very well. There are a lot of tools that maybe do lots of things not quite as well. Is there a balance there with what is a must have versus a nice to have? Would it be better to have a big tool or better to have a, a kind of a, a niche product that, that focuses on one specific area? I mean, it's a great question, Eric, and I don't know if I have a clear answer for you. I mean, the challenge with calling tools in a school district is there's probably somebody that's invested in that tool. That's why it's in the school or the district. Somebody enjoys using that. I mean, these point solutions often are their best of breed solutions. They're great solutions and end users love using them because they can do the job better than, you know, a tool that's more of a Swiss army knife type of tool. Well, it can be a challenging conversation to tell that user that they're no longer going get, to get to use that tool and they have to use this sort of lesser general tool. But those conversations are going to happen. And mm-hmm. I think in, in many cases, there will be tools that will be more general tools that will check the boxes and will be good enough, but will satisfy a broader set of needs for the school and the district that, you know, will survive. And those best of breed tools, they're either going to to get acquired by larger companies or, you know, they're going to go away if they don't end up getting acquired. That would sort of be my sense of what's going to happen in the in the market here in the next you know couple of years. That layered on with the fact that it's a very challenging fundraising environment now. We have higher interest rates. We have we've had higher inflation. It's coming down now. That tends to drive risk capital out of the market, and companies that need to raise money that don't have true product market fit, traction, growth it's harder to raise money now than it was, you know, just 24 months ago. So it's going to have a material effect, I think, on the number of companies that are going to survive through this. Sure. Yeah. I'm curious being on the VC side where I'm sure people pitch you all the time, right? I have ideas They email you, they message you on LinkedIn. What are some of those problems that people are coming to you about right now saying, Graham, 
here's a problem that we need to fix. What are some of those problems? Well, I, I think about, I'm glad you asked that question because I think about this future state in schools and districts where we have all these pressures and budgets will be more dear for schools and districts we talked about. And I think of school district buyers retrenching around some of their core needs. And to me, there are sort of four buckets that I expect that they will continue to invest in through thick and thin. There may be others, but those four buckets are staffing. They've got to staff and there are shortages. And so more and more school and district leaders are looking for more innovative, creative ways to staff. And we can talk about examples around that. The second one would be mental health and well-being. The pandemic has uh, obviously shined a light on an epidemic of mental health challenges for students. And you asked earlier about what's changed in education. I, I think that's one of the things that has changed in the last 10 to 15 years is schools have realized they've got to own mental health and well-being. It's one of those foundational needs in addition to nutrition that need to be met in order for students to be ready to learn. If, if your head's not in the right place, right? You're, you're having issues, you can't learn, right? Just like if you're hungry, you, you can't learn. Who else is gonna own that besides the school and district to help support the social, emotional development, the, the well-being of kids? So they've leaned into that, making all kinds of investments because it's foundational to kids being able to learn and, and achieve. A third area is school safety. Obviously you can't learn if, if you're not in a safe environment. And certainly we all know stories where that sort of fundamental right of students to be safe in school has been violated in, in recent years. And then the fourth area that I think they, they always will invest in is high quality, affordable curricular materials. It's my view that you know, the cream rises to the top, so to speak, in terms of curricular materials. And there's more and more stuff for schools and districts to choose from. And so more and more, they're looking for effective curricular solutions. Obviously, they got to be affordable as well. So I see founders, you know, coming to me across those four themes. And I think those are themes through leaner budget times that will be prioritized still by, by schools and districts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So staffing, I, I, I'd love to dig in with staffing with you in a little bit, but your second bucket of mental health, was that, that was more framed about mental health of students and is also mental health of adults part of that as well? 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's, we talk more about the needs of students, I think, when we look at what founders are building but I've met some very thoughtful founders who certainly are thinking about the adults as well. Mm -hmm. Teachers are overworked, overstressed, and just like students, they need to be ready and have you know a strong foundation of mental well-being in order for them to continue to do their jobs. And we're losing teachers out of classrooms because they're overworked and they're overstressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the whole idea of retention is fascinating to me because 
I had a guest on, in fact, the last episode talked about teacher motivation and Hertzberg's um, factors of motivation. There's the satisfiers and the dissatisfiers. And there's you know a certain a certain minimum that that teachers can deal with as long as they're having the positive responses at schools. So the idea of teacher retention to me is just fascinating. What what are some possible solutions with that? Is it mostly mental health related? Are there other things that school leaders can do to increase retention? Yeah, it's a great question. I have a few ideas on that. I, I think number one, creating more flexibility in the perfection in the profession, I think is is helpful. I mean, teachers want to spend time with students. They don't want to spend time as much doing, you know, a lot of the administrative work that they end up doing. So one of the investments that I have, if I can talk about an investment, is in a company called Magic School. And Magic School is using generative AI to create a whole set of tools for teachers that help them streamline the administration and planning of their job. If you think of things like a lesson plan generator, generative AI can be incredibly powerful in streamlining the time to create a lesson plan or teacher needs to create a rubric or they want to create a lesson around their YouTube video with reflective questions based on that. There's a whole set of tools there that AI can help not eliminate the time, but the average teacher in terms of planning and admin is spending between eight and 10 hours a week. Now it's a significant Mm -hmm. chunk of their time that they're not with students. If we could reduce that to two, three, four hours a week, using some of these generative AI tools, well, that's a significant amount of time that's given back to the teachers. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one component of, of it. You know, I think, I think another component, obviously, we talk about pay and teacher pay and having pathways for teachers, I think is a significant part of it. There need to be more pathways than just becoming a principal or going to the central office. And I think we're getting more creative about those about those pathways. I also think you know preparation is another aspect of this, and I'm seeing more and more creative ways to prepare teachers. I just read a story this week about teacher apprenticeship programs and how in the last couple of years there are now 27 states that are doing this, and I think it opens up a whole world of possibilities for people that can come into the classroom that maybe traditionally haven't had access to that because of financial limitations or just because of other other things in their life that have created obstacles for them in becoming teachers. So the idea of earning and learning at the same time, which is what the apprenticeship program can provide, that might open up more opportunities for people with more diverse backgrounds. And, you know, I think that's could be incredibly, incredibly valuable over time to uh, widen that aperture in terms of the types of people that we can attract to the profession. Mm-hmm. And frankly, be more reflective of the student bodies that we have as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a district in uh, Texas I talked to recently that had a paraprofessional position a vacancy that was posted. They had, I don't know, five or 10 applicants. They posted it as an apprentice position and had 10 times the number of applicants to that position. 
And what we've learned is people want to become teachers. We don't have a hiring cliff. We have a credential cliff, right? People want to work. They want to teach. The pathways to doing so just aren't, they're not addressable for a lot of people. So this whole apprenticeship as a recruiting tool, as a grow your own tool, people that look and sound like the community that they're teaching in, I think is going to be the future of, of education. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic and I agree with you, Eric. Yeah. I want to go back quickly to Magic School, one of the investments that you made. The idea of generative AI being part of the, the new workflow, I guess, of teachers. Are you getting much pushback from administrators that have a traditional you know, school of thought in terms of, well, my teacher needs to be the one that plans them. They know the kids. How can a technology better prepare lessons? Or are you getting much pushback from admins? It's really interesting. I mean, so much has changed over the last even 12 months or so that OpenAI made their, you know, incredible announcement about ChatGPT. That was such a seminal moment in the development of AI. And right after that, what we saw from some large districts, New York City being one of them, was to ban this technology, right? That was a quick reaction. Uh, they weren't the only district to do that. Others followed. But what's so interesting to me is I think the, the narrative has shifted so quickly, right? New York City's no longer banning it. In fact, I think what is more and more the case is that school leaders, admins, teachers realize that we, we can't put the genie back in the bottle and that mm-hmm. It's critical that students actually understand and use these tools and know how to use these tools in the future. And there are all kinds of narratives. I mean, I go back and forth between, you know, this idea that the tension between, well, AI is coming for all our jobs and or, oh, but we better learn how to use AI. It's incredible. Right. I mean, there's this (laughs) tension there. And one of the things that I heard that so resonated with me was this, this narrative around, well, no, actually, we think about AI, AI is not coming for your job. It might help you with some of the tasks. It's not coming for your job. But you know who is coming for your job? It's a human who knows how to use AI really well. They are coming for your job. So we better teach students and staff how to use AI. And so what I'm seeing is more and more school administrators who are recognizing that and they're supporting their teachers more and more in professional development for how to use these tools. And of course, we need to have guardrails around these tools. But I think they're also thinking more and more thoughtfully uh, about uh, students and how to teach students to responsibly use AI. Because you know, we can't put our heads in the sand, right? I mean, students, mm-hmm. if we if we prohibit students from using it on their school device, well, they can just go home with a personal device and they can use this. And, and they're finding those technologies mm-hmm. and they're using them. So we've got to put time and energy into how, how do we teach students to use the tools responsibly? And teachers need to be trained on that. Anyhow, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I want to go back to, so the four key needs, again, that you mentioned, staffing, mental health, safety, and curriculum. I want to dig into curriculum a little bit because we all hear about COVID learning loss. And of course, those couple of years during COVID were not good for anybody. 
And a lot of students now are coming in. It's the lowest test scores in math and language arts that we've seen possibly ever. When you think about COVID learning loss, I think about you know tier one instruction, tier two instruction, tier three instruction. That's an area that we focused on for decades. Is there something that we're missing as far as getting students back to the level that they should be at? I mean, I think it's such a complex problem, Eric, to begin with, right? And I think if we put schools in context and what they have to do, there are so many responsibilities that schools have. You and I talked before. I mean, we, we take it for granted, and we learned this during the pandemic, that schools do some foundational jobs that are incredibly valuable, right? Like during the pandemic, we all realized, well, childcare, <laughs> we rely on our schools to do that. Here we are working from home, and our kid is, you know, playing or working right next to us in that moment, like, oh, yeah, schools really, really help with childcare. That's a foundational need that they meet. And then we saw the some of the socialization issues, particularly for younger students being isolated that came during the pandemic. I think we so many of us realized in that moment, oh, my God, it's the social connections that schools enable. That's that's incredibly valuable, right? They fill that role that we need them to fill. And then we add on top of that, like academic, right? Almost like a third layer. We want them to, to learn and to achieve certain uh, academic uh, skills and knowledge. And that during the pandemic, we saw, as you pointed out, we saw, you know, significant declines. We're we're back to where we were 30 years ago in terms of math and reading scores. So, I mean, it's a very complex issue. I, I'm encouraged by a number of things. You know, number one, I think schools are really focused on this, on getting students back to proficiency. I think more and more we're looking at products that are effective and that work for students. And there's more and more high quality stuff that's out there. And I think more and more attention is being paid to choosing things that are truly effective and for whom than than ever before. And I, I also think from an intervention standpoint, there are more resources. You mentioned tier one, tier two, tier three. We have more and more students that are tier two and tier three right now. Schools are, are resourcing that both from a uh, a staffing standpoint, which they, they do very, very well. They, they know how to staff. And also, I think, from a tools and technology standpoint. But it's a, I mean, I just want to underscore what a massive challenge it is uh, dealing with uh, the complexities of uh, challenges that students face. So we, we could talk more about that, but, you know, that it's such a huge challenge. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's not like a widget where things are consistent from one day to the next. We're talking about little human beings that have lives outside of school that you can't influence necessarily. There's yeah, so many factors that go into play. Yeah, I think one of the things we haven't realized yet, but we've been talking about for a long time, is technology's potential to help personalize education for learners. So being able to meet the learner where they are rather than you know a teacher teaching, you know, the same thing to 30 students. How do we enable a classroom where each of those 30 learners 
is being met where they are and the teacher is sort of serving as a guide on the side to help them. We haven't realized the potential of that yet. I, I still think there's a ways to go in terms of technology's ability to do that. I think AI is a real potential enabler of that. But I think to your point about, you know, how do we how do we close the 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 learning loss gap? How do we create access to opportunity for all learners? Technology still has a ways to go to to step up and to enable that. Mm-hmm. And there's always this, I guess, hesitancy from some educators, some parents that the technology is the solver of the problems. Like I think about a kindergartner or first grader being on screens for a long period of time, the screen is able to personalize the entire learning journey, which is great. There's also that married with the socialization, with the interactions. What are your thoughts on that balance? I know that's a huge question. Yeah. I mean, first of all, yeah, they're kindergartners, first graders are too young to be spending all their time on screens in a one-to-one device environment. They need that collaboration. They need that socialization. I think everybody does. I'll use, I'll use one company as an example. I, I'm really bullish on technology tools that can enable greater human interaction and get the pedagogy of learning being a very social behavior. And I think at its core, the best learning experiences are social experiences. They're not experiences where we're just interacting with a device for long periods of time, learning that way. So one of the investments that I made earlier this year is in a company called Curapod. And what Curapod does is they help teachers create these interactive lessons on slides with interactive questions using generative AI. And they've grown really rapidly because as we talked about earlier, if I'm a teacher and I can save time in lesson planning, right? Mm -hmm. That helps me in my job. What I think is really powerful about Curapod is teachers are adopting it because of the technology, but they continue to use it because the technology and the team really gets the, the fact that the best learning experiences are these robust, collaborative, engaging discussions in classrooms. And that's what a Curapod really does, is it gets students interacting with one another, asking questions, discussing, debating ideas, sharing things in a collaborative setting. And so teachers are adopting it because it's helping them with planning, but they keep using it because it creates these really engaging, robust human interactions, these discussions between students, between the teachers and students. And I'm really bullish on tech that can do that, right? The, the, of course, the irony is you're only using the tool for a moment and then tech is out of the picture, right? It's all about the, the human engagement, the human interaction at that point. The purpose behind it, is it solving a real challenge that you're facing? Real challenge, schools are really challenged around student engagement and how do we make school really relevant for learners and tools mm-hmm. that do that in a, in a novel way are likely to stay, you know, have a place in education for a long time because, you know, mm-hmm. 
student engagement is a, a top issue, a top opportunity, a top challenge for administrators and teachers alike. Sure. Yeah. Is there a way that K-12 schools and district leaders can collaborate with venture capitalists, with ed tech companies to create a better overall employee experience for teachers and staff? What's that collaboration look like potentially? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it has to be a co-design and co-creation process between the, the founders, the team, the operators that are building the tools and the educators, the administrators themselves. I mean, and it has to be a constant process. I mean, the most successful founders that I have in my portfolio are those that really obsess about the problems that teachers and administrators and students face in the classroom. And they're building to alleviate those problems. And in doing so, they're spending an inordinate amount of time, you know, visiting with stakeholders in schools and districts and understanding their problems and co-creating and co-designing with them. I mean, I think that's just table stakes for anyone to be successful in the space. Mm -hmm. And a kind of a reflective question. Um, We talked about this a little bit before we hit the record button. How much of what we're seeing now, the problems we're trying to solve now are the same problems that they were 20 years ago, but maybe just dressed up a little bit differently. We hear in education all the time about how the pendulum always swings, right? Are we solving the same problems now that we tried to 20 years ago, or are what we solve, is what we're solving right now more of a novelty? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd like to reflect on that more. I, I, think, I think there are certainly things that we continue to put our focus on and we've we've got to put our focus on i'm talking about literacy i'm talking about math i mean those fundamental academic outcomes that we measure we haven't solved that two-thirds of third graders are not proficient yet in reading and third grade as we know is is a critical point in time yeah we haven't even really addressed math at this point, which is a huge challenge. Student performance in math tends to decline over grades. As students progress, it's very much, much more sequential than literacy in terms of how we learn math. So if we, we don't get certain math concepts, but we, we yet move on to the next level of math, we, we students fall farther and farther behind because they need those earlier concepts, which, you know, speaking of is one of those we'll talk about something we've been talking about for several decades now, but we still haven't fully embraced is the idea of competency based or mastery based learning. This idea that students progress at their own level, but they shouldn't actually move on until they've actually mastered content. I mean, where else, if we were in the workplace and an employee, you know, got 70% of what they needed to, to, to learn in order to do their job, we wouldn't say, well, let's just move them on to the next thing to learn, right? We'd want to actually have them learn 100% of what they need to do in their job. But we, we do that in education. You know, you got 70% right. Okay, we'll progress you on to the next 
thing, right? And what we lose sight of is, well, actually knowing that 30% of stuff, that's really important in math to be able to learn the next level of stuff, right? And that becomes cumulative over time as people don't learn the things that they need to learn. So there are a lot of reasons competency-based and mastery-based hasn't taken off, but it's, it's one of those opportunities, I think, for technology to continue to try to make that more and more accessible for schools and districts to be able to implement. Yeah. Yeah, I want to shift the questioning a little bit from kind of where we are right now to where are we going? So, Graham, where do you think education is going? What might five or 10 years from now look like in your mind? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, the vouchers were uh, sort of an earlier version of educational savings accounts. I forget exactly. It's We're well into the 20s in terms of the number of states in the last few years that have passed legislation for educational savings accounts. And as a backdrop, a lot of this, I think, was inspired through the pandemic as parents were forced to come up with other options. Traditional school closed. How am I going to educate my child? Maybe I get a micro school. Maybe I get a virtual school. Maybe I just hire a tutor to come in. All these different options that parents considered a lot of them really valued that flexibility. And so the ESA legislation has come into popularity. You know, a couple dozen states, I think, now have passed these. They allow families to have a reservoir of funding, taxpayer funding, to put into more flexible types of purchases than vouchers allowed. Vouchers were kind of, you know, do you want to go to a private school? You move your money into that. A religious school is an example, right? With the ESAs, you can be much more flexible. Do you, do you need to get a tutor? Do you want to go to a go to a micro school? All kinds, more and more options for families. And so what the narrative is around that is, are we seeing school become more unbundled over time where you have families that, you know, while they might have the the child go to, uh, you know, a physical school for certain classes or certain activities, they might might opt for things outside of the school to actually supplement that, that education. And so I expect in the next five or 10 years, there'll be more of this unbundling. Certainly traditional schools and districts will still educate the majority of kids, but I think gradually we'll see more and more families do these flexible options. I think one of the other things I expect to see more and more of that we are seeing is more and more creative pathways and alternative pathways for students. We all know about the backlash over the cost of four-year degrees and questions about return on investment on college degrees. I, I still think College is an incredibly good investment, but not everybody feels that way and not everybody is on a four-year path. And so I'm seeing more and more narrative around alternative pathways for students, more focus around non-traditional pathways. Instead of going to a four-year college, maybe I go and I do an apprenticeship and I learn something while I'm earning money. 
maybe I go into a, a boot camp or another type of program besides going to a four-year degree. I think it's very healthy. I think we, we need more alternatives to four-year college. We need more programs that allow students who want to go on a four-year path to get a head start on that. Concurrent enrollment, which is where we have students in high school actually taking college courses and earning college credit while they're still in high school and maybe even getting uh, all the credits that they need for a freshman year of college while they're in high school. Tremendous advantage for many students to not only get a head start on college, but, but have the confidence and begin to sort of save money towards that college degree. That's another trend. I fully expect we'll see more and more personalization around education in K-12 schools and districts as well. And hopefully technology fulfills its potential in terms of being able to help learners learn at their own pace and maybe even learn things that they're more personally interested in within a traditional school setting. I still love the vision of, you know, 25, 30 learners in a classroom having some personal experience in terms of their, their learning versus what we've traditionally done, which is, you know, a teacher teaching sort of the same pace, the same content to that entire classroom, right? While we know students are at very different levels in terms of their knowledge within that classroom. So I do expect we'll see progress towards personalization as well. If, if, if students are opting out of traditional school and, dis, and districts, how are we going to attract them back? I think one of the answers is we need to meet student needs in a more personal way, student interests in a more, more personal way. That's how we'll get more of them back into traditional schools and districts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions to wrap up our conversation today, which has been fantastic. If you can go back and give yourself advice before you began supporting educators, what would that advice be? Advice before I began supporting educators. You know, I think I think one of the things that confession, uh, I've never been in the classroom myself. I taught. It wasn't in a classroom. It was outside of a classroom setting. And I have incredible respect for those folks that have been in the classroom, have supported students and have faced you know many challenges i mean teaching is one of the most complex jobs that anyone can do and i think the value of a great teacher is unmatched in terms of well parents the value of parents are very important in the 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 child's you know ability to learn and their success but next to that is a great teacher and I don't know. I don't know if I would have been a great teacher or not, but if I could go back and advise myself, maybe I would have spent a couple of years in the in the classroom. I came up through the policy side, doing education policy, and then jumped into doing startups. I have great empathy for teachers and administrators, but again, you know, it's hats off to those folks who've been in the classroom and have done that work because I think it's incredibly valuable, incredibly challenging work. What is one action or strategy that you hope each school leader listening today takes back with them and implements to help create a positive employee experience for their people? Well, 
I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, I, I think the idea of building a, a, a thriving culture in schools is incredibly important for teacher recruitment and retention. And I think part of that, I'm reading a book right now on open systems and can't get into the details of the book. It's been fascinating. But I think one of the the real tenets of that is for leaders to be really open and transparent and to listen to stakeholders. And in education, we have tons of different stakeholders, right? But if I'm, if I'm an administrator, what should I be paying attention to? I should be paying attention to uh, what my teachers need uh, and their voice. I should be paying attention to parents and parent needs. Obviously, I should be paying attention to student and student needs. And it's, it's easy to say. I think it's actually hard to do it really well in practice to let all those stakeholders have a voice in the current and future direction of education in our school. And yeah, if it's interesting to the audience, I'd be happy to, uh, you know, sort of recommend the book and share that book out. But it's been really eye-opening because I, I do think that there's a real opportunity there in terms of opening up these systems to be co-created and co-designed with the communities that they're a part of. And that that's how they take more ownership. And I, in, in, in an interesting way, I think almost alleviate the pressure on the administrator. Administrator might feel like, well, I need to have all the answers. I need to have all the ideas. And I think the answer is no, <laughs> you, you don't. In fact, that's too much of a burden to bear and you don't have all the answers, right? But if you open up the system to the voice of teachers, parents, students, all the stakeholders, the answers are there in terms of the direction that you need to go in. Yeah, I wrote that down. I'm going to go back and, and read this book um, after our conversation today. So I appreciate that. One final question. What's a celebration you have recently experienced that you want to share with the audience? Celebration. that I, I it's, a, it's a small one, but it involves my son. And it's back to, I think, the idea of what a difference great teachers can make. He's a sixth grader. And hmm. last year in fifth grade, when he came home from school, I would ask him, how was your day? And not unlike other parents' experience, he would say, it's fine. You know, I'd asked him to elaborate yeah. <laughs> and it was just a normal day, dad, right? I, there wasn't much engagement because he wasn't enjoying school. He wasn't enjoying his teacher. I asked him this year, within just a day or two of starting, how was your day? What did you learn? And it was completely different. He came home and he was telling me about all this stuff that he was doing in science and he was learning. He was telling me about math and math lessons. And all I had to do was ask one question and you know, he knows how to talk. Three, four minutes later, he was still telling me about his day and about interesting things. And to me, that was such a moment to celebrate. It was like, here's my son, who I think was really struggling last year, who is much more engaged in school, is really enjoying class and what he's learning. And, you know, as a parent, you know, I, I couldn't be more excited that 
you know, he, he's doing much, much better in school. So it's a, it's a small thing, but a very personal celebration for me. That's great. Did you ask him a different question to get that answer? Or was it more about the teacher and what the teacher's environment was? You know, I, I unpacked what he was excited about. And going from fifth grade, one teacher to sixth grade, lots of different teachers, different subjects, new students, new mix of students. Part of it, I think, was just the natural change of going into middle school. Part of it was he was really excited about some of his teachers. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you, Graham, if they want to reach out? Yeah, there are a few ways. They can email me directly. It's it's just my first name at edivatecapital.com. LinkedIn is a great way to find me. I write about a lot of topics in early stage startups and investing, particularly B2B K-12. You can find me on Medium um, where I write about this stuff. Uh, those would be the best ways. Sure. I'll include those in the show notes as well. Well, Graham, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for all the work you're doing for educators, for students. I know it's certainly needed right now. So thank you. Eric, thank you. Thank, thank you for helping elevate the voice of folks in the field and, and shining a spotlight on these issues through your podcast. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.